All right, it's now that time in the show when we get to connect with leaders in the community, find out a little bit more about who they are, what they do, and how they feel about the current state of the city. Dr. Roz Roach, known as Dr. Roz, is the founder and executive director of Dr. Roz's Healing Place, a temporary home and wellness center for abused women and children in the city of Toronto. Welcome to Toronto this weekend, Dr. Roz. Well, thank you. Thank you for creating a space for me. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for, for joining me this morning. You are doing uh, very important work in the city. Thank you for the heavy lifting that you do. What motivated you to create the uh, to create Roz's Healing Place? Well, actually, my work is not just in the city. Our mandate is to work towards the eradication of violence. So we have we work locally, nationally, and globally. So worked around the country and also around the world. So to get to the question of what what motivated me, and it's it's a bit of a five minute story, but I'm going to take it anyhow because it's important for me to put it out there. Yeah. Now, um, in 1994, I've had the privilege and the opportunity to go into most of women's organization in Ontario to do staff as a consultant to do staff development, board development, mediation, facilitation, policy development, and those key pieces that would build the foundation for any functioning organization. And I, all the, the shelters I went into, they were in really poor state and dilapidated states. They were poorly funded. And from time to time, that would cause inner conflict. Uh, so I one day, and I think it was May the 5th, or the 6th, 1998, I went into a corner on Brimley and Sinclair. It was called the Emily Stowe Shelter for Women. Mm. And the Emily Stowe Shelter for Women was a little house on the corner, which I called the house in the Perry, the little house on the Perry. And it was founded by some brilliant and um, courageous women around Scarborough. A few women came together and found this house and formed this organization mm -hmm. to shelter women and children who are survivors and victims of violence uh, with particular focus on family violence. And when I was leaving that house one day as a consultant, a child grabbed my skirt and wanted to leave with me. Mm. I'm really taken aback by that because I'm, I'm a black woman with dreadlocks, which was almost unheard of at the time. And dealing with my own obstacles of <laughs> my dreadlocks and my and my blackness and my accent, and this little white child wanted to come with me, and I thought that broke my heart. And one of the staff members who still works with me um, removed that child grip from my skirt, and the I asked the staff, "Where's the mother?" And the staff said the mother was upstairs sleeping. You know, I got into my vehicle and I just welled up with tears. I got so, so sad to, for the understanding of here I am, a black woman, and I keep saying with dreadlocks, with a strong accent, so you can figure out what I'm saying. <laughs> for this little child to want to leave with me and seriously crying to leave with me, who had never seen me before mm. and didn't even know who I was. And even the staff had seen me basically for the first time, other than from the front page or the cover page of a magazine. So I went to my vehicle and I thought that was a loud cry for help. That was a loud cry to take me to safety. That was a loud cry to whatever that was. 
So I remember having this big, heavy cough phone in those days. And I called my a good friend. And I said to her, I said, you know, I think I'm going to close my private practice and raise money and build a center for women and children who are leaving abusive situations, who are survivors of gender-based violence, and um, a place where they can heal when they leave the abusive situation. Because this place is not conducive to healing the trauma or violence. And my friend quickly responded. And she said to me, Roz, do you know that there's no money in that? Why would you want to go to school all these years with so much, um, you know, so much qualification and do something like that? I immediately put the, the phone, the receiver down and basically said goodbye, goodbye, because I felt she was taking away my thunder, my thunder. I felt that she was discouraging me. And I know that if I have to do something, I share it with no one. I know I just get it done and then tell them after for a whole number of reasons, because I don't want to hear someone say to me, uh, oh, you can never do that, or that wouldn't work, or what are you trying to prove? I don't want those dark clouds in my vision when I decide to do something. Mm. So I call my soulmate and dearest sister. She is now a senator in Ottawa. Her name is Dr. Mary Lou McFedrin. She's a white woman. Mm -hmm. I call Mary Lou and I said, Lulu, where can I see you? I will need to speak with you. And Lulu told me that I could meet her at the McGill Club, which was a white woman's club in Toronto. Mm. And it was, you know, it was for white women, white privileged women. So she said to me, you can meet me at the club. And we had a good laugh. And the laugh was, Marilu, you see what I look like, right? You know, they would think I'm your maid when I come in there. And we laugh again. And she then said, come on, Roz, meet me at McGill tonight. So I met her at McGill Club and we sat in a hot tub. And when I had the opportunity, Mary Lou was sitting on top of the tub. I was in the water. And I, when I had the opportunity, I looked her up in her big blue eyes. And I said to her, I said, Lulu, I'm thinking of leaving my private practice and raising money and build a center for abused women and children. And this is what she said to me. And I would say this is the most powerful piece of the journey. She said, Roz. Do you know the magnitude of such a project? Mm. However, if anyone can do it, it's you. Mm. And seven years later, I raised five million dollars. I raised four million dollars and found a million of my own around with my friends, and I did my own fundraising and raised five million dollars and built Dr. Rice's healing place. Wow. Six years later the doors were open. And here we are today, 25 years after, celebrate our 25th year, I think, uh, with the work. So that's the story. Wow. What an amazing story, Dr. Roz. And I I always say, I I run a nonprofit uh, charity uh, organization in Hamilton, and I always say, you always just need one person that believes in your dream and yeah. says yes to your dream. And you had that yeah. in your friend. Oh, I've, I've definitely <laughs> had that in my life as well. Uh, you know, the stats are pretty scary when it, when we're looking at women leaving abusive relationships, approximately 4.7 million women, 30% of all women 15 years uh, of age or older report that they've experienced sexual harassment um, as well. When women and children and their children come to you, they've obviously, obviously suffered through so much physical and psychological harm. 
What is the first thing you need to remind them of or tell them when they come into your care? But I first need to speak to that opening statement you just made. Mm. You have in front of you 30% of women and girls who have experienced this. Now you keep in mind that women do not report abuse. Right. Do not report violence towards them, sexual violence towards them. So what the stats you have in front of you is the reported stats. Yeah. Keep in mind that almost 80% of women and girls do not report. Do the math. So when we keep re speaking to these statistical um, documented reports, that's only those who report. Mm -hmm. Very true. How many women or girls report the abuse? Me being a, a, a therapist and running an analyst or psychotherapist or psycho, whatever you want to put to my name, running a practice um, before opening this for gender-based violence. And I would tell you that 90% of the people who come to see me would tell me I did not tell anyone but my therapist. I cannot even tell my mother. Wow. Wow. So just do the math. Mm -hmm. And I see how proud we are when we say in our speaks and in our lectures and in our readings, in our books, in our articles, when we say that two in three or one in three women report, I keep reminding people that sisters don't tell anybody. Mm. They, and for a whole lot of reasons. For one, they're afraid that they'll be judged. They're afraid they would not be believed. They're afraid that they be ostracized. They're afraid of the shame and guilt they go through. They're afraid of how society would view them and treat them, including other women. Mm. So there are a whole lot of reasons why women don't step up and say, this has happened to me publicly. Yeah, there's they're so, afraid much, of, so much they're stigma. Afraid the whole systemic stigma, societal mm -hmm. stigma, and the fear. So... I take that back from you about the 30%. I will let you say that because that's the proof you have. But I really and often need to emphasize that most sisters don't talk. Yeah. I, I travel a lot for work and came back about a week ago from working in another country. And every sister said to me, I'm afraid to tell anyone. Mm. I'm afraid because I'm a TV reporter. I'm afraid because I'm a government leader. I'm afraid because I'm a school teacher. I'm afraid because I go to a certain high school and I don't want anyone to know. I'm afraid because my mother would say to me, why did you go there? Why did you do that? Why did you wait? Did you leave the house at six o'clock? All the reasons why we don't tell. Right. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about the women and children that come into uh, your healing place. Obviously, they've suffered physical, psychological harm. And I ask this question because I think sometimes in the midst of that, um, you can lose a sense of self. You can lose a sense of identity. So what what is the first thing that you remind women of when it comes to themselves, caring for themselves uh, when they come into your care? Because I'm sure um, they come very broken. The first thing that I remind them is, is what I put in the Sisters Calling Theater production. All the answers are in that production. 
talking about the journey from the time the women come in and their children to the time they reclaim their lives and celebrate their lives and become a very healthy, positive member of society. That whole story is put into a theater production called Sisters Calling, which is going on stage at the Aga Khan Museum on the 8th of July. And I hope you would find the time to come and sit in that auditorium and see this theater production. We're definitely going to talk about that in just a moment, Dr. Oz. I, I, I do have a question so about I, that production. I, I'm going around to come to the answer okay. question. Go ahead. Leave it with me. I'm very theater-like in my talk when <laughs> I talk. <laughs> and that's, that's the... We don't have a lot of time, so I want to make sure that we get okay, a really okay, a real sense okay. of so of all the things that you do, Doctor Oz. Okay, so the first thing I want to say to I will say to a woman, which as I said, is in the production, is no one has the right to treat you like this. Mm. You don't deserve to go through this, and it's to help women understand that they did not bring this suffering on themselves. It was perpetrated by someone, and most and ninety nine percent is by a man, um, a male. So that's the first thing they hear. The second thing they hear is that you can do this. We will be here for you. We'll support you. We'll guide you through the journey and we'll be there for you at the end. We will be your therapist. We will be your witness. We will be your support person. And we will, and you'll become a, a member of the healing circle, the healing group. So basically that's the first thing you say to a woman and a girl or anyone who's, no one deserves to suffer like this. No one deserves to hurt you, you know? Yeah. Um, no one deserved um, to inflict this kind of pain on you. And that's the first thing I believe that every sister, every woman or girl would hear or child. And I can I could just imagine that that can be transformative, especially if you've been in an, in an environment where, you know, you haven't heard that. When women eventually leave uh, your care, Dr. Roz, um, and I'm assuming, you know, are independent, are able to find their own home and a sense of identity again, uh, what is that like and, and how do they leave maybe understanding, yes, that, that, that they are seen, uh, as you said, and that they are valued in who they are? Yeah, well, I believe that when we have all or most, of, most women, all women who come to the center to find affordable housing, because housing in the city is out of, out, as you know, is out of control and yeah. most people cannot afford it. So we, a big piece of our work, while we do the work around caring for the soul and caring for the heart and the, the emotional pieces, we also do the work around finding a safe and comfortable, comfortable space for the, woman and their, for the women and their children to be able to thrive. So we do find affordable housing. And when they leave, they, they often would leave feeling empowered and stronger. Mm -hmm. But we still have to, in a lot of cases, we have to stay Stick with them because, as you know, it takes a lifetime to heal um, trauma from abuse. It takes a long time. So we often have to stay with them and support and continue um, penetrating in their psyche. The, the whole idea of you are worth it. You, it's going to be fine. You know, they go through ups and downs. Some women leave and they, they become very sad or depressed for leaving because they, they are comfortable and they are contained with an environment that is conducive to wellness. And they would leave feeling really afraid, mm. which is yeah. a theme. And that, again, you see in the sister's production. So that's what uh, women struggle with. So you, we often have to hook them up with community services and be around for them if they need to pick up the phone anytime and call for guidance and additional support. We are there for that. So the journey, the, the job is not just a one-time thing. Yeah. It's, it's a long, ongoing, in different forms, of course, in different ways. 
Absolutely. Um, it's not that when they are in, in the center, but they are guided through the community and they're guided through work and finding jobs in schools and to be able to take their life back and to be independent and to achieve positive life outcomes. Holistically. Okay. So tell us about more about this musical dance symposium. It is titled Sisters Calling. Uh, it premieres July 8th at 7 p.m., as you said, at the Aga Khan Museum in Toronto. And it's based on Rosa's story. Tell us a little bit about Rosa and what motivated you to, uh, to create this musical. Well, what motivated me is um, many things motivated me, of course. But what motivated me is looking at the 40 years I've been doing this, run around the world, run around the country and the province, um, attempting to educate the public on the impact of violence on, on society, on, on, on communities at, at large. And, um, and using the traditional way of workshopping and educating, which is flip charts and overheads and handouts and brochures and articles, and which really attracts just one small population of people who would come out to these conferences and workshops. And I have a very strong artsy side of me as I have a very strong academic side. And I looked at the academic side of how I did things. And about 40 years later, here we are, where the world is in a mess and our city is in a mess. And um, there's so much abuse and so much violence and so much pain and hurt that's affecting the huge society in different ways. And I thought I would go to the side that I like a lot, which is theater and dance, dance and song. And um, the motivation was really after coming back from an international piece where someone I had met and talked to who was a, a television um, anchor woman. And um, I talked to her for three hours and she talked to me about a friend who was um, being abused and she wanted to know what to do. And I knew she was talking about herself, mm. but I also knew that she could not tell me about herself because she was a public figure. But I knew she was talking about herself. And I did ask her in the meeting with her, aren't you talking about yourself? And she said, no, it's a friend. And about three weeks or two weeks when I returned to Toronto, I got a call that she was murdered, violently murdered by her husband, um, who had hammered her head to the, to the floor oh. with a hammer and had set her on fire. Mm. And that made me really angry and really sad. And I don't often get sad. I get really angry before I get sad. And I, and I like my anger because it always motivates me to make positive changes. And my anger is not about yelling or screaming or using, not that. My anger is about what do I need to do and how hard do I have to push to make a difference? So I began um, on, I lie on my yoga mat and I felt really overwhelmed with the, the murder. And I can call her name because she's, uh, it's public. Mm. Um, her name is Masia. And I felt really sad about Marcia. And, um, and I decided to go to my artsy side. I got up and I began to dance and I began to sing. And I, I'm a great songwriter. Then I began to write and I wrote Sisters Calling. That is about five years ago, four years ago. And now we are ready to hit the stage in a big way. And the whole intention is a messaging theater, musical dance, theater production. The hope is to take this production around the province, then take it around the country, and the hope to get it to Netflix. All right. It's called Sisters Calling. It will premiere on July 8th at 7 p.m. at the Aga Khan Museum in Toronto. Dr. Roz, thank you so much for the privilege of your time today.